Please turn with me now in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Uh, we'll look at verses 12 through 17 for a few moments together this morning. Matthew chapter 21, reading from verse 12. This is on page 826 of the church Bibles. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of that city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray. Father, now we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit, that he would come and open your word to us, that he would apply it to our hearts, that we might see Jesus and that we might be transformed by that sight, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem in a dramatic way that, as we saw last week, was intended to firmly establish Jesus in the minds and hearts of his followers as the great messianic king. As we saw last week, Jesus carefully choreographed his entry into Jerusalem to demonstrate that he was the king who had been foretold by the prophet Zechariah, who would come to finally and fully bring his people home from their exile. Zechariah had spoken of a great king who would come riding into Jerusalem seated on the colt of a donkey. It was an image, you remember, that doesn't convey the weakness and poverty that we might associate donkeys with, but, but rather as an image that conveyed immense power and control, even terrifying amounts of power and control. The message that was going out is that this is a king riding into the holy capital to bring his people home from their exile that is so powerful that he doesn't need to fight to do it. He doesn't even need to ride in on an intimidating, snorting war horse, clothed in armor, but simply he comes in on a peaceful donkey. And it is the image of a king riding into Jerusalem who is so powerful that his enemies just drop their weapons at the mere sight of him. It is the image of such overwhelming power and control that his enemies just fall away before him. Or to use the Psalm 2 imagery that we referred to last week, it is the image of the kings of the earth, those raging nations, being broken in pieces effortlessly, like a piece of pottery is broken by an iron rod. 
And so as Jesus got this donkey and it's cold and he rode into Jerusalem upon them, it was no accident. Jesus choreographed this scene to declare in his actions that, and, and he, he declared in his actions the crowd understood it, as we can see from their responses, declaring that he was that Messiah. And he was riding into Jerusalem in direct fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. He was saying, this is the day that Zechariah has spoken of. This is the day when God is bringing his people fully home from exile to live with him in his full and perfect kingdom. It was a dramatic and definitive way for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem, this holy city that has really been his destination since he began his public ministry all the way back in chapter 5. And this entry into Jerusalem sets the scene for everything else that follows it. It establishes Jesus in our minds, regardless of what will happen to him. As a king of unmatched strength, it is clear from this point on, he will never be the hapless victim. He will always be in control of what is happening to him. Now, we have understood Jesus to be the great messianic king for some time. In fact, Matthew has so carefully constructed the opening chapters of his gospel that, that really from the very beginning verses, we have understood Jesus to be the great Savior King anticipated and prefigured throughout the Old Testament. But by riding into Jerusalem like this, we understand that this is the day of reckoning. The public ministry of Jesus is over. Preaching ministry is essentially finished. His preparatory work is done. Now is the time when we will behold just what it means for Jesus to be that great Messiah. As Jesus rides in on this donkey, it is clear to the crowd, it's clear to us, Matthew's readers, that this is D-Day. This is the moment of reckoning that we've been waiting for. But now as we look at these verses before us this morning, we come to see that the first act that Jesus does in Jerusalem as the mighty Redeemer King who has come to save His people is not what we might have expected. Now, the contemporary first-century expectation would have been that this Messiah riding into Jerusalem would have done something like, like go to the, the Antonia Fortress and banish the Roman soldiers who were stationed there. But you've seen the pictures of the temple, reconstructions, pictures in your study Bibles. And in those pictures of the temple, in one of the corners, there's this multi-story structure. You understand that that structure is not part of the temple, but it's, it's military barracks in which there was stationed a, a, a Roman garrison. And you understand that that fortress was a national humiliation. It was a religious 
humiliation, right? It was bad enough that Palestine was under Roman control. It was bad enough that Jerusalem itself was under Roman control. But this structure clearly demonstrated that absolutely everything about first century Israel was subject to Roman oversight and domination. Right? The reason why the Antonia Fortress was a multi-story building attached to the temple was so that those Roman soldiers could look down into the temple, and they could see what was going on in there. Right? This is a watchtower designed to, to keep watch over what is happening in the temple, and it clearly communicated to the Israelite, to the worshiper in the temple, as they would turn around and look up and, and see that watchtower there, towering over even the most holy place, it communicated to them that, that even the most intimate aspects of their life, even their worship, was subject to Roman control and oversight. It was humiliating. It would be something akin to the government installing a camera in our sanctuaries so that they could make sure that they know exactly what we are doing when we gather for worship. It was the natural place for the Messiah to go. It was the natural place for him to come riding into Jerusalem and to go straight to the Antonia Fortress and to overturn this national humiliation and restore Jerusalem just in the way that the prophets had foretold. But yet, it's not to the Antonia Fortress that Jesus goes. Instead, he heads to the temple. And once he gets there, he does something absolutely extraordinary in an apparently violent act. He overturns the tables of these money changers and these pigeon sellers. Instead of focusing his redemptive zeal on the Romans, this humiliating Roman occupying force, Jesus focuses his zeal on the Jews, disrupting the very focal point of Jewish worship, the very focus of the nation's religious life. And so we ask, well, what is going on here? What on earth is, is Jesus doing? Well, it's been clear throughout Matthew's gospel that the religious life of first century Judaism was not what it ought to have been. Right? Throughout his public ministry, Jesus has clashed with the scribes and the Pharisees, these representatives of official Judaism. He has attacked their fundamentally an adequate understanding of the law of God and what it means to be united to God as His people. Right? It was in the Sermon on the Mount, right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, that Jesus launched His most pointed attack, telling His disciples that the fundamental problem with the Pharisees was that their understanding of the law of God was far too small. Right? That's not how we think of it. When we think of the Pharisees and their relationship to the law, we think that they were far too strict in their observance to the law. But in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says to His disciples, I tell you, unless your righteousness 
exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says to the disciples, if you want to be saved, then your righteousness must exceed that of the men who are notorious for their righteousness. The problem with the Pharisees wasn't that their view of the law was too high, it was too low. They had reduced it down to a matter of mere externals. They had reduced it down to to little things like walking a a certain distance on the Sabbath. They had reduced it down to, to ritual washing. They had reduced it down to avoiding certain people in certain situations. But what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is that when we truly understand who God is, and what His kingdom is like, then we'll understand that obedience to the law is something that cannot be confined to simply the outward actions, but it must run through the whole man. It must dictate our actions, but it must also drive and shape our words and our thoughts and even our intentions. But the Pharisees and the scribes in the first century Judaism that they represented for all of their learning and all of their memorization of the Old Testament, for all of their theology and their disciplined rigors, they had not understood this. They had reduced their religion down to to externals, the right thing done in the right way to get the right result. It was blasphemy. That's why Jesus is so ruthless when He engages with the scribes and the Pharisees throughout His ministry. It's a way of thinking about God that reduces Him down to being nothing more than a servant, really worse than that. It's a way of thinking about God that reduces Him down to being nothing more than a senile old man who you can manipulate and exploit if you just say the right things at the right time. It was blasphemy. And it is that blasphemous mindset that is encapsulated in the scene that confronts Jesus when He enters the temple. When Jesus beholds this desecration, He cries out in verse 13, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That's a reference to Isaiah 56 verse 7. Then he continues, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, because Jesus is dealing with money changers here, our natural assumption is that Jesus is rebuking them for some fast and loose business practices. We assume naturally that he's rebuking them for for taking advantage of the worshippers. Maybe the pigeons are the pigeon sellers are selling their birds at, at inflated prices. Maybe the money changers are are exchanging the, this money for for excessive fees. But but really, to understand the scene, you have to understand that that phrase, a den of robbers, is not so much a comment on the way that these men are doing their business. Jesus is quoting Jeremiah seven. But in Jeremiah 7, the prophet rebukes the people for their pious words, their feigned worship that hid self-centered and self-reliant hearts. In Jeremiah chapter 7, we're told that the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord was, stand in the gate of the Lord's house, the temple, 
and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. And then verse 8, he says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. For all their religion, at the core, at the heart, they were not devoted to God. Behind their mask of religious formalism, they were driven by the worship of themselves. Their main concern wasn't the true worship of God, but only their own self-satisfaction. Their main concern wasn't obedience to the law of God, but instead it was loyalty to a law that they had made themselves. Jeremiah 7 contains a litany of their sins, going after other gods, oppressing the weak and vulnerable, lying, stealing, committing adultery, even going so far as to sacrifice their own children. But worst of all, they did all that, then came into the temple, went through the motions of worship, and then declared, we are delivered. It doesn't matter what we do, we'll come to the temple and our sins will be washed away and we will be safe. The temple had become their trump card. As long as they had the temple, then they thought they had God in a stranglehold. It was inconceivable to them that God would destroy His own temple. That's what lies behind that cry, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It was them saying to Jeremiah when he was warning them about this coming judgment, listen, Jeremiah, it cannot happen. We of the temple, regardless of what else they did, we of the temple, God will never destroy that, and so we are safe. We'll run in there, we'll hide, and God cannot judge our sin. And so you understand, when we read Jeremiah 7, you understand what Jesus is doing here. As he confronts these money changers, these pigeon sellers, he's standing in Jeremiah's place. And he is doing exactly what Jeremiah did. He is levying the same accusation against them. Right? He's not commenting on their business practices. It's not a den of robbers in the literal sense of being a place of, of theft. Jesus is referring to Jeremiah 7. This has a, become a bandit's cave. This has become a place of wickedness. What should have been the focal point for the worship of God had become a cynically public display of of actual contempt for God. It's 
The problem is not the selling of pigeons. The problem is not the exchange of, of money. Those are simply practical necessities. But remember, for the Passover, people are coming to Jerusalem from everywhere. They're coming from all across Palestine. They're, they're coming even from the diaspora, right? To, to understand first century Passover, we have to think something along the lines of, of, of the Hajj and people's journey to Mecca. People coming from all over, swarming into this city for the, for the highest feast and celebration. And they can't bring with them what they need. Right? Remember, the sacrificial animals had to be unblemished. Right, and if you've ever been near a farm, you know how hard that is. Unblemished means no disease, no mark, no disfigurement, no anything. It's hard to raise an unblemished animal. But then it's harder to bring it across a journey of hundreds, thousands of miles to Jerusalem. They couldn't do it. And so they had to have animals available in Jerusalem for the worshippers to purchase in order to take to the temple to sacrifice. But also this exchange of, of money was simply about making sure that the financial offerings that the worshippers gave were ones that were good and true, right? As these people flooded into Jerusalem from all over Palestine and, and beyond, they, they carried currency that was different. Even in different cities throughout Palestine would have their own currency. And so the temple needed a standard form, and so they chose the Tyrian currency, that is the money of Tyre, because it was renowned to be of accurate weight and have an accurate purity of gold and silver. And so these worshippers had to come and exchange their money into Tyrian coins before they could go and worship. It's not the problem. The pigeons aren't the problem. The money's not the problem. And I don't think we're even given a hint here that the way these men were doing their business was the problem. The problem was that they're doing their business inside the temple. Right? This market had traditionally stood on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. But in AD 30, meaning just recently, a year two before Jesus comes into the temple, it was the high priest Caiaphas who gave permission maybe even gave the command that the stallholders come and relocate from the Mount of Olives and, and set up their bazaar within the temple precinct itself. The problem wasn't the traders. The problem was that the worship of God was held in such low regard that even the leadership of Israel, even the high priest himself, thought nothing of the hallowed ground of God's temple that he was willing to turn it into a common marketplace. It was symbolic of the transactional way in which they understood their relationship to God, and it was also devastatingly revealing of just how far they had corrupted the notion of what it meant to be united to God. They had reduced it down to being little more than an ethnic affiliation. For as John the Baptist had condemned them all the way back in chapter 3, just as Jeremiah's audience had corrupted the temple into 
little more than a talisman to keep them safe from the wrath of God. First century Judaism had corrupted their familial relationship to Abraham into a guarantee of salvation. In the covenant that God had made with Abraham, it was clear that the message that He had given to Abraham and his sons after him, this word of hope that there was salvation to be found within the kingdom of God, it was clear in the covenant that God made with Abraham that this was a word of hope, this was a gospel that was to be proclaimed to the whole world. Right? Do you remember how God said to Abraham, the nation that would descend from him was one in which all the families of the earth would be blessed. Right? It was the message that, that Abraham and his offspring were to, be, were to be missionaries of grace. They were to go into all the world, and they were to, to go into all the world and proclaim to them the judgment of God against sin, but to offer to them the free reconciliation with God that comes through faith. They were to say, they were to go out and to be a light to the nations, a lighthouse of this grace of God going far and wide, telling everyone that there is room for them within this kingdom. But this market, not just in the temple, but specifically in the court of the Gentiles, demonstrated that this mandate was long forgotten. It was a statement that the Gentiles are not welcome here. Around the court, the inner court, the court of the women, there's a low wall, and on that wall was posted, any Gentile that goes beyond this wall does so on the pain of death. The Gentiles were restricted to the outer precinct. That was bad enough, but now those outer precincts were full of this bazaar, this market exchanging money, full of the sounds of, of animals and haggling and worshippers. It was clear the Gentiles are not welcome here. There's no room for you in the kingdom of God. All of it together, symptomatic of just how corrupt and sorrowful the religious life of Israel had become, and that is what sparks Jesus' messianic zeal. As the great messianic king, it was his mission to lead his people home and to free them from all their enemies. And what we see here is it is their own leaders who have become their enemies by turning the house of prayer into a den of thieves, turning that holy ground into a home for blasphemous evil. Now, interestingly, significantly, it's the blind and the lame and the children that understand what Jesus is doing. It's the humble and the disadvantaged who understand the significance of Jesus' zeal, and so they come to Him for healing. They cry out in praise for the one that they rightly understand to be Zechariah's messianic king. But the rulers are only indignant. They've been offended at this assault on their own little kingdoms. 
their commitment to themselves and to their power structures, to their status and their control, meant that they couldn't see Jesus as He is, and they could only write Him off as a troublemaker who needed to be stopped. You see, what Matthew's original readers would have understood is that in doing this, Jesus has publicly attacked the honor of the religious elites. And normally that would result in the public discipline of the challenger, or even at this level, an attack on the honor of the high priest himself within the temple itself might even result in the challenger's execution. And of course, that is exactly what will happen. This symbolic prophetic confrontation is an essential step on the road to the cross. And we said with Jesus' fourth prediction of His death just prior to arriving in Jerusalem back in chapter 20, we said that with that fourth prediction, a darkness descends over the gospel. But now that darkness gets just a little bit darker. It's clear that Jesus is Zechariah's king, but it's also clear that the redemption that He will accomplish for His people will look nothing like what we expect. The enemies that Jesus is engaging with is not the Romans. It's the enemy within. It's those who claim to know and worship God, but who are really just using it as a facade to worship and serve themselves. And you see, that is the great point of application for us. Jesus will not share His glory with another. To benefit from the salvation that He offers, you must take Jesus and let go of anything and everything that competes for your devotion. But you remember how Jesus puts it starkly in Luke chapter 14? Luke tells us, now great crowds accompanied Jesus. And He turned to them and He said to them, if anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. To, to have Jesus as your Savior is to be so devoted to Him that your love, even for the people that you were closest to, will look like hatred in comparison for your love for Christ. It is to make Jesus first and foremost in your life for all of your life. These money changers and pigeon sellers were symptomatic of a cynical view of God that tried to go through the motions to do just enough to convince God to bless them, but yet all the while retaining functional control of their lives. It meant that the very men who should have been the chief worshipers of the Messiah as He came to inaugurate His kingdom now become His chief opponents. They cannot give up their little kingdoms, and Jesus will not have it. His kingdom is one in which He reigns supreme. And in order to join Him in that kingdom, we have to let everything else go. And like the blind and the lame, like the children, we must come and wholeheartedly and with joy 
submit to him. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, how we rejoice to watch our Savior in these final moments of his earthly ministry. This is not little Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus, the zealous King, the Jesus of John's vision, who comes with a sword in his mouth. It does us good to see our King fight for his glory and for the good of his people. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be men, to help us to be women, children even, who understand the glory of Christ as King, that we would submit to Him mind and body and heart and hand, and that we would follow Him wherever He may go. Lord, teach us of His glory. Humble our hearts that we might submit to Him and delight ourselves in Him. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.